the number of deaths from cancer uh, has been going up in this country quite rapidly for at least 60 years. Robin, near, nearly 800,000 new cases of cancer are diagnosed among Americans every year. Their cancers will be treated this is what we knew about cancer in the 1960s. Cancer. 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 Metastatic cancer. The most logical way to cure a patient of cancer is to remove that cancer. And then uh, the newest innovation being the use of drugs, which we refer to as chemotherapy. Their cancers will be treated by surgery, radiation, drugs, or a combination of the three. These conventional methods will result in cures or substantial remission of the disease in less than half of the cases. For the remainder, the choice is to do nothing. Or to in the early 1990s, um, people had demonstrated that there are in human tumors T-cells that can recognize tumors and tumor cells and potentially kill them in a very specific manner. This is Dr. Jim Allison, one of the two winners of the 2018 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. T-cells, the, the, the basically the immune system's soldiers, so to speak. Yeah, the soldiers that, you know, you start with a few, you got to build an army, and then they go out and take care of whatever the problem it is, you know, virus infection or bacteria, or in this case, cancer. But every treatment, even such incredible treatments, are not without risk. Basically, anything can happen with immunotherapy. There are serious side effects to this. There have been. It's very expensive. And Dr. Allison recognized this in his PBS interview from two years ago. Absolutely. There are serious side effects in some patients. Not in all, but in some. But they're typically manageable. Uh, the, the algorithms have been developed as physicians have experience with it, where these can be really minimized in the vast majority of patients. I actually gave grand rounds the other day on brain metastases and sort of the genomic guidance clinical trials that are coming out. And somebody in the audience asked me if it's a more hopeful scene in oncology. And I think it is. And I think a lot of that is secondary to immune checkpoint inhibitors. This is Dr. Justine Cohen, who joined me in the studio this week. I am Justine Cohen, and I'm a clinical assistant professor of medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Where she currently practices oncology. So I actually initially thought I was going to do infectious diseases, and I um, did my oncology rotation as a resident, and I fell in love with the patients. And sort of as I got more and more involved with oncology, I became interested in the science behind oncology and the opportunities for translational medicine. This, this, this goal of generating T-cells which could wander about the body and destroy tumor cells whenever they... Dr. Cohen has published original research on the complications of these checkpoint inhibitors and on the neurologic complications of certain cancers, specifically melanoma. Um, I saw a lot of brain metastases and gave a lot of immunotherapy. And so while I am not a neuro-oncologist, I am very familiar with neuro-oncology. We had a center for brain metastases at MGH. And so that's sort of how I got to where I am now. The topic came up recently when I was attending on service, and one of my residents presented a case of a patient who had metastatic melanoma innumerable brain metastases, and we'd been consulted for seizure management. The patient was intubated, had presumed sepsis, on pressors, very sick guy. And the way the patient's case had been framed to me was, this patient had just finished his second cycle of a checkpoint inhibitor for brain metastases, and his prognosis was grim. Now, he was very clearly sick at the time, but by no means does being on a checkpoint inhibitor for brain metastases mean his probability of survival was low. In fact, 
data suggests quite the opposite. It's especially true in melanoma and even in brain metastases. There have been several studies that show combination immunotherapy, which we're going to talk about today, has a near 60% response rate in patients with melanoma and brain metastases, which is totally crazy, right? Like that's so different than what it was 10 years ago. That historically, melanoma has been one of the diseases where chemotherapy is really least effective. With 10-year survival rates hardly breaking 10% in metastatic disease. All of whom had advanced metastatic cancer that had either failed all standard therapy. Including toxic drugs like decarbazine, which has an unknown survival benefit. Or who had no standard therapy uh, that was effective available to them. At least until now. Squibb put together a phase 3 randomized placebo-controlled trial of monotherapy with this anti-CD4 antibody ipilimumab in late-stage melanoma, and there was a survival advantage. As you mentioned, it was the first drug ever of any kind to show survival advantage in late-stage melanoma. Uh, this is particularly exciting because this has been a disease where for nearly a generation we've had no real advances. But we digress. First, we should discuss what these checkpoint inhibitors are, what they do, and compare their efficacy to historic treatments of conditions like metastatic melanoma, where treatment with drugs like dicarbazine or temozolomide yielded a median survival of six to seven months. So checkpoint inhibitors, and I just want to say this is also called immunotherapy. Or immune-modulating antibodies. These are a class of monoclonal antibodies that have, like I said, really changed the treatment landscape for patients with many cancers. Um, We think of it first in melanoma because they were first approved in melanoma. So anti-CTLA-4. Cytotoxic T-lymphocyte-associated antigen 4. Which is ipilimumab was the first immune checkpoint inhibitor approved in 2011 for the treatment of metastatic melanoma. And since then, there have been multiple PD-1 antibodies. PD-1 for programmed death 1 antibodies. And PD-L1 antibodies. PD ligand 1. Approved. Most notably, pembrolizumab, nivolumab. Atizolizumab, dervolumab. There have been just a number of them, and they're being used in many different cancers. Besides its use in melanoma, the FDA has approved pembrolizumab for refractory Hodgkin's lymphoma, head and neck cancers, metastatic for renal cell carcinoma. Immune checkpoint inhibitors are approved in melanoma, non-small cell carcinoma, hepatocellular carcinoma, and for nivolumab, renal cell carcinoma, colorectal cancer, head and neck cancer, atizolizumab also has approval for urothelial carcinoma, non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, triple negative breast cancer. And yeah, these therapies are truly groundbreaking. But a new treatment approach is getting some excellent results, we're told, and could be used to fight all kinds of different cancers. And how do they work? I mean, so I would say that the easiest way to explain it is that these checkpoint inhibitors do exactly that. They sort of block a checkpoint where PD-1 binds to PD-L1 and they allow the T cells into the tumor. Unlike chemotherapy, which directly kills cancer cells, immunotherapy works on white blood cells called killer T cells that devour bacteria and viruses. But instead of promoting the T cells' activity against infectious pathogens, the T cells target cancer cells. And by doing that, they almost unleash the immune system. But basically, another way to explain it is they really take the brakes off of the immune system and they allow the T cells to do the job that they're really meant to do. Surveilling the nervous system. 
surveilling the, the entire bot. body. Exactly. When we say that they unleash the immune system, that's sort of where we get into the side effects of it because sometimes the T cells can can create some issues. Yeah. And so in these situations when we're using the checkpoint inhibitors, a lot of the times, you know, in my own practice, I see only patients who have metastatic brain cancer as a, you know, and they're treated with these checkpoint inhibitors. How do I know that a patient who comes in and they're encephalopathic or they're altered or they're weak? How do I know that's not just the brain cancer itself and it's actually a consequence of the checkpoint inhibitors? So good. I appreciate that you use the word checkpoint inhibitors or immunotherapy and not chemotherapy because we're really moving away from chemotherapy, that term, when we're talking about immune checkpoint inhibitors because the side effects are so different. So it's important to make that distinction. But your question is really when patients are being treated with immunotherapy and they present with neurologic symptoms, but they're also known to have a cancer that has neurologic side effects, whether it's brain metastases or spinal metastases or leptomeningeal disease, how do we know what's causing the symptoms? Is it the disease or is it the side effects from the immunotherapy? And it's a really great question. You know, I think that as with all of medicine familiarity with side effects and knowing how patients present with that side effect is the first step to recognizing and treating the symptom. You can imagine this would be pretty straightforward when you have a patient who has metastatic non-small cell lung cancer on a checkpoint inhibitor for the last two months, who now has three days of progressive ascending weakness and areflexia. Ignoring all the other past medical history, this is a classic story for GBS, which we recognize as a consequence of immunotherapy in as many as 2-3% of patients who are treated. It's also pretty straightforward if you see a case of myasthenia gravis in a patient who was treated with nivolumumab 10 weeks ago or a patient who has hypophysitis with secondary adrenal insufficiency and hypothyroidism after ipilimumab. But what about the patient who comes in with aseptic meningitis, or who has recurrent strokes and you suspect it's vasculitis? Many of these patients have either been treated previously with chemotherapy, and they could be in a relatively immunocompromised state, you'd have to rule out the atypical pathogens in these circumstances, or for aseptic meningitis, what's not to say that the patient had some recent viral infection and it's got nothing to do with the T-cell modulating therapy? After all, common things are common. But we're seriously recalibrating our understanding of just how common these autoimmune complications are with checkpoint inhibitor therapy. The older studies cited neurologic side effects as being about 1% of patients who receive immunotherapy, and now we we think it's about 10% of patients if we really, truly recognize every single neurologic side effect that could happen. But what are these neurologic side effects? What can happen with immunotherapy? Dr. Cohen and I talked about this next. Basically, anything can happen with immunotherapy. So the T-cells are unleashed and they are in the body looking for cancer, and they can create inflammation in any organ. And we really emphasize that it can happen anywhere. Anywhere, meaning with the heart, it could be myocarditis, in the skin with vitiligo or psoriasis, or even Stevens-Johnson syndrome, lungs having pneumonitis, the intestinal tract with colitis, the joints, the pancreas, any organ system. So when we're speaking of just neurologic immune-related adverse events, it still is a varied phenotype of different toxicities. So patients can have toxicities that affect the CNS, such as encephalitis, 
They can have peripheral neuropathies, like a sensory peripheral neuropathy. They can have a Guillain-Barre syndrome. They can have a neuromuscular junction side effect like myasthenia gravis. So we see this wide array of side effects, but I think knowing which ones occur, such as the ones I just mentioned, and sort of being able to detect them. Because the truth is, chemotherapy does cause things like neuropathic side effects, you know, neuropathies, but immunotherapy shouldn't. And so when somebody who's on an immune checkpoint inhibitor gets a neuropathy or starts having, you know, neuropathic symptoms, it's usually a sign that it's from the immunotherapy and not from their disease causing that. Again, here lies some of the difficulty inherent to recognizing these neurologic symptoms as a direct consequence of immunotherapy. Neuropathy is super common. And as we all get older, the risk of an idiopathic neuropathy continues to gain momentum. Or if you're getting pulses of corticosteroids for your cancer, what's to say that the neuropathy is not related to the glycemic changes from protracted steroid use? Or that the proximal leg weakness in your patient is due to a steroid myopathy, and not Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome, which would follow checkpoint inhibitor therapy? When it can be hard to link these neurologic symptoms to immunotherapy, it's often convenient to see that these symptoms began after initiation of treatment, but when after initiation. Dr. Cohen says that even the timing of it isn't all that reliable. So, you know, again, I don't want to compare these immunotherapies to chemotherapies, but, you know, we've learned a lot about kind of the temporal evolution of neurologic consequence of chemotherapy. And, you know, you mentioned neuropathy. So cisplatin is a great example of a kind of a dose-dependent neuropathy, but cisplatin can also cause press uh, more acutely. Do we see a temporal evolution to these checkpoint inhibitors or is it kind of like unknown still? It's a great question, and this is really what's being studied um, across the board, but no. In fact, there's there's really not a relationship. So what you're asking is, okay, over time, this patient's been on therapy for a year. Well, is he out of the woods? Is he not going to get a neurologic side effect, or is he at a higher risk because there's some sort of accumulation of drug? We really have no idea when patients get side effects, and we think it happens slightly earlier, but the truth is it can happen at any point in time, and it can even happen after treatment has been discontinued. So there's still a lot that we need to learn about this, and it has something to do with the immune system and, un like I said, unleashing it, that the T cells can sort of have these neurologic side effects even after a patient has been off of therapy, which is kind of wacky, but that's why early recognition is really the most important first step. When it comes to early recognition, experts agree that you should start by doing all the things that you typically would for a patient in those particular circumstances. If a patient has a seizure and they've got known intracranial metastases, it's probably worth empiric anti-epileptic treatment and repeating neuroimaging to look for hemorrhage, lesion growth, or new lesions. Odds are it's not going to be a case of limbic encephalitis, but that should still be in the back of your mind. And if the patient continues to have frequent refractory seizures, that's beyond what you might expect for intracranial metastases, that's when you should be thinking about infections of the central nervous system and these other occult autoimmune pathologies. Because once you find that, yes, there is a lymphocytic pleocytosis in the CSF and the patient has new mesial temporal lobe flare changes, the treatment will change. Dr. Cohen and I discuss this next. Because these agents are they are so powerful at treating a patient's cancer, they prolong life in many situations, they, they improve patient's functional status in many circumstances. How compelled do you feel to discontinue or to change these regimens when there is a neurologic complication? So because a lot of the neurologic side effects are so severe and debilitating, we stop immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy immediately. And most of the time we do not resume it. 
Some of that depends on what's going on with the patient's disease, their actual cancer. But most of the time, these patients require an admission to the hospital for several reasons. There's a lot of testing that we do, right? We do always do an MRI. We often do a lumbar puncture with an in-depth analysis of the CSF. We often do EEGs, muscle biopsies if myositis is suspected. And so depending on the severity of the toxicity, the majority of these can be managed with steroids, although we often give high dose and we also often give it IV. And that typically requires admission. However, there are certain patients that no matter how much steroids we give and how early we give the steroids, they're really resistant to having a response to the steroids. And so those are the patients that may require further immunosuppression, such as rituximab, azathioprine, Celsept, or even plasmapheresis or IVIG, which we've used in several cases. So as we learn more about the neurologic immune-related adverse events, we can become more familiar about which of those effects respond to steroids and which may require an escalation in the immunosuppression. What I can tell you, however, despite treating with immunosuppression, there is no data that says that these patients do worse because they had a you know, neurologic immune-related side effect. And there's no data that says that they do worse because we have to give them such high doses of immunosuppression, which is a question that comes up a lot because now we've revved up the immune system with immunotherapy and now we've dampened the immune system with all this immunosuppression. Are they going to lose their effect to the immunotherapy? But I think we can all think of some examples of patients that we've seen who have had toxicities we've treated with significant doses of immune suppression and they've gone on to do really well. So I think that that's a missing link that we just don't know enough about. There are a couple of immune-related side effects that actually are correlated with a better outcome. I'm sure you've heard of these, like patients with melanoma who develop vitiligo, and patients who develop hypophysitis. There are There is some data that shows a positive correlation. Neurologic immune-related side effects have not been studied in that way. So you've evaluated and treated your patient, a 55-year-old woman with bladder cancer on pembrolizumab for the last 14 months, who you were called to evaluate for progressive dysarthric speech and cerebellar ataxia with some difficulty ambulating. MRI showed no acute infarction, and the CTA was unremarkable, CSF profile was normal, and you felt that it was related to the pembrolizumab, so you stopped it, treated her with five days of corticosteroids, and discharged her to rehab. She comes back to your clinic a month later, now ambulating quite well, speech completely recovered, and she's anxious about what to do next for her cancer. What do you recommend? Do you ever re-challenge with a checkpoint inhibitor? So with some immune side effects, we do consider re-challenging. Certainly with some immune side effects, we treat through, for example, thyroiditis or a rash that's pretty mild, we can treat through. For neurologic side effects like encephalitis or Guillain-Barre, we never treat through and we never resume. It's just too risky to resume therapy. I don't think you'll find anybody in the country who would feel like comfortable resuming. Can you, in instances of tacrolimus-associated press, can you switch to something like serolimus? Is there, you know, you switch between immune checkpoint inhibitors, it still kind of unmasks the same T-cell response. Like, can you do that? That's a great question. You're asking if I was treating somebody with ipilimumab alone and they developed myasthenia gravis, could I switch them to PD-1 antibodies? 
you could. I mean, the truth is most of these patients are on combination immunotherapy or anti-PD-1 therapy, and ipilimumab is not approved for other cancers. I think it's risky, and I would defer to the neurologist who specializes in this. So you guys have a lot of weight on you. <laughs> yeah, and it's all very new to us, too. As we're wrapping up, I just want to emphasize that, as usual, the Brainways podcast is for educational purposes only and not to be used for clinical decision-making. That said, we hope that there's been a lot for any listener to take away. For providers in the audience, the emphasis here is that we have to increase awareness for these peculiar complications of immunotherapy. Like Dr. Cohen mentioned, they should not be mistaken for side effects of chemotherapy, like a hypercoagulable state from asparaginase or vestibular dysfunction and hearing loss from gemcitabine. These are heightened immune reactions to normal cellular tissue, and as such, they're treated most effectively with immune-suppressing therapies. We know many of these neurologic and systemic complications, myositis, polyradiculitis, Guillain-Barre, hypophysitis, myasthenia gravis, but many we're just learning about even in 2020. As providers, we should recognize the limitations of our experience with these extremely new and powerful therapies, and we should be working together to determine if and when they should be discontinued. In many instances, patients may prefer the side effects to the cancer. And speaking of patients, Dr. Cohen had a message for them as well. I think for patients, certainly emphasizing that they should alert their doctor of any neurologic symptom as quickly as possible is really important. And in fact, we have just published a book facing immunotherapy. It's part of a series that's going to be available on Amazon any day now. At the time of our original interview, the book was still in press, but it's actually available on Amazon now. Every chapter is authored by a subspecialist describing the toxicities of immunotherapy in that specialty. So our neurologic chapter was written by Amanda Guidon, who um, has sort of been a pioneer in the immunotherapy toxicity world. Now you'd think that while these complications are uncommon for patients who are ultimately exposed to checkpoint inhibitors, the fact of the matter is we are using these drugs more and more every day. They are extraordinarily effective treatments for patients with metastatic and fatal cancers. And while we have painted a horrifying picture of the complications of these therapies, we should not lose sight of their advantages. It has revolutionized the treatment of cancer and immunotherapy has this chance for a cure. I know that a lot of people don't use the word cure, but I think we do use what's called a durable remission and putting patients into durable remissions. There was one gentleman that I treated two years ago for encephalitis. He had been cancer-free for the preceding 18 months, which was a lot to say since he had previously been diagnosed with a stage four non-small cell lung cancer. Now he's cancer-free. You can imagine how difficult those conversations can be and the emotional weight that comes with the decision to discontinue such an effective treatment. It's not easy, but until we find ways to mitigate these deleterious immune responses while promoting a heightened sense of good, effective tumor surveillance, we'll continue to face these tough decisions and these tough conversations. I think we still have a long way to go. Dr. Justine Cohen. 
She's an assistant professor of medicine at the hospital at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Special thanks to her for joining me in the studio this week. And while the show featured all the consequences of immune checkpoint inhibitors, again, I cannot stress enough how effective and powerful these therapies are and how they've given new hope to patients with a variety of cancers. None of this would have been possible were not for the incredible research by Dr. Jim Allison, who you heard at the beginning of the program, and his collaborator, Tasuku Honjo, who shared the 2018 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. And when he's not wearing his lab coat, Dr. Allison is brandishing his harmonica with the checkpoints, a band made up of fellow immunologists and oncologists. And here they are, live at the House of Blues. This week's episode of the Brainwaves Podcast was produced by myself, Jim Siegler, as well as Dr. Justine Cohen. Our show is produced out of Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with music this week, courtesy of John Watts, Kai Engel, and Kevin McLeod. Sound effects by Mike Koenig and Daniel Simeon. For more information about what was discussed on the show, as always, you can take a look at our show notes for the references to the highest yield literature on the topics, and follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio. I'm Jim Siegler. Talk to you soon. (laughs) 